Some would say the existence of America is a miracle within itself. Its founding documents inspired and laid the foundation for a one-of-a-kind experiment. You know, Benjamin Franklin was walking out, and a woman asked him, said, what kind of government have you given us? And he said, a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. The result of our founding, founding fathers and as a nation is arguably the most prosperous, inventive, industrious, and generous nation on earth. You know, there are those that would accuse this great nation, declaring its foundations to be built upon greed, heartless ambition, and racism. But we patriots know the truth. You see, from the Revolutionary War all the way to the space race, our nation was one that was bathed in prayer daily throughout history. Our founders, founders credited its success to our creator, our God. And countless captivating episodes of divine intervention are documented, though rarely shared. As we look to remind ourselves of the miracles God has performed in this nation over the past years, I pray that it will stir up your faith as we need to expect them again. Did you miss these accounts as I've gone over the past few weeks of, of the American miracles in your history class? It's no surprise. As our education system works to get God out, let me bring God back in as I continue to share some of the surprising miracles from God that helped to make America great. Was George Washington bulletproof or protected? See, this one is debated, but it's not debatable. Before he led our great nation, at only 23 years old, General, excuse me, Colonel George Washington had volunteered as an aide to General Braddock in 1755. It was during the French and Indian War. A fierce fighting broke out as the troops were ambushed by the French and Indian forces as they marched through the woods, becoming pinned down in this ravine. The fighting brought down oh, nearly every officer among Braddock's forces except young George Washington. More than 900 died in that chaotic battle, including General Braddock. Colonel Washington rallied the troops from horseback, an easy target. He was only 30 feet away from the firing line, well within range of the enemy. The remaining troops with Washington retreated to Virginia. He later discovered four musket ball holes in his coat. In a letter he wrote home, he described the miracle of his survival. But by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot out under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. Was George Washington bulletproof, or was he just protected by God? An Indian with the Allied French recounted that he and his men could not shoot Washington even at a close range. He said, 
The great spirit protects that man and guides his destinies. He will become the chief of nations, and a people yet unborn will hail him as founder of a mighty empire. I have come to pay homage to the man who is a particular favor of heaven, who can never die in battle. Think of what would have happened had George Washington died. The modern-day Joshua of our country. Think of as his leadership, his humility, his submission to God Almighty had been taken away. You see, whether it's fog, whether it's fish, or the seemingly bulletproof founder of our country, there's no question God's hand and his providence has been with us all. Amen? Amen. So today, folks, we're going to take a look at chapter 13. We're going to finish that up, and God willing, get through a good percentage of chapter 14 as well in the book of Luke. Last week, we looked at three parables. We saw the parable of the fig tree, the mustard tree, and the leaven. And I hope that you walked away with a little bit better understanding, a more proper understanding of each of those. Today, we're going to look at the narrow way. Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able, Jesus said. Have you ever been called narrow-minded? Then you're on the right track. <laughs> We're going to see that Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, not because he was saddened that of what he must do there, but because he came to protect and provide God's people the apple of God's eye, his chosen ones, and the fact that they would reject him, the truth, the life, and the way. Do you think Jesus will clash with the Pharisees again today? Rhetorical question. Don't answer it. Of course he will. <laughs> and just like our first president of the United States, we are going to take a look at humility. Being fed a big old piece of humble pie doesn't always taste so good. But sometimes it's necessary. Jesus is going to encourage us there too. So today we are going to look at these and much, much more. And the title of today's message is simply Strive. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we are going to hit on some incredibly scary passages if we don't know you. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who is sitting on the fence, that they question their salvation, even in the smallest amount, that this would stir them to, into action so that they may believe in you, Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, our Messiah. And Lord, as we go through your word, I pray that you would allow me to espouse well that there would be that better understanding, that the Holy Spirit would be in this place inside of each and every one of our hearts. And Lord, etch the scripture upon our hearts. But Lord, also, if there's anything of man, I pray it fall upon deaf ears. Know how much we love you. We thank you. We sing your praises. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. If there's anybody here who doesn't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of the ushers will come around and give you one. We'll be starting today in Luke chapter 13, verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? 
So as Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, a man asks him, Lord, are just a few to be saved? A controversial question, even in today's day and age. Jesus, again, could have just simply said, yes. But that's not his nature, is it? Many people wonder about this, and they question the exclusivity of God, wondering how he could exclude people from wanting to live eternally with him. But you see, they've got it all wrong. For God wishes that none should perish, that all should be saved. The only problem is, that's not going to happen. And we're going to see that in verse 24 today. You see, it's not about exclusivity when it comes to God, but instead, inclusivity. John 7, 37 states, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Then we see in John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I mentioned this last week as so many would accuse God saying, I could never believe in a God who would allow this or allow that to go ahead and happen. See, it's not that the door is shut right now or that they can't or are forbidden to enter into the kingdom of God. It's simply they don't want to come to God on his terms and only through Jesus. John 14, 6 states, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. After hearing the question, Lord, are there few who are saved? Jesus did what he usually does. Instead of answering it directly, he dealt with it and the one who asked personally. Jesus got right to the practical because his concern was not theoretical. It was personal. Verse 24. And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You know, there are those who say that there's about 8 billion people on this planet as a whole. And studies show that there's only about 2.2 billion people that are Christians. That means there's almost 6 billion people that aren't saved. That's not to mention the supposed Christians that will hear the words, I tell you, I do not know you, depart from me. So just looking merely statistically, Jesus is spot on in his prediction, his prophetic words saying that the gate is narrow. So the next time someone calls you narrow-minded, just simply agree with them. For the gate is narrow that leads to salvation. Verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. But, but wait a minute, Adam. Didn't you just say the door was open? That God wishes that none should perish? So I did. But you see, we only have a small time frame, a small window here on earth. That's the time that we're alive. 
And that brings us to our first point. Time is short. Time is short. You see, after we die, we don't get a second chance. It's not like we're placed in some holding cell where somebody can go ahead and pray us into heaven, although there's some religions that believe that. You see, you won't find that anywhere in Scripture. Each and every one of us will stand before our Lord and give an account for what we've done here on earth. Those that name the name of Christ will receive his forgiveness because the price has already been paid on the cross and we will enter into heaven. But those that rejected Jesus will find weeping and gnashing of teeth as we're about to see. You see, right now, the door is open. But there will come a time when we take our last breath, when the master will shut the door. I do not know you. Harrowing words for sure. Verse 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he said, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But Lord, people will protest. We ate with you. We listened to you. We came to church regularly. We went to the Monday night Bible study potluck. And the Lord will say, I don't know you. Because the issue is not association. It's regeneration. Now, if I go ahead and ride a subway, I walk like a New Yorker, I talk like a New Yorker. Hey, Joey, you want to go get some coffee? Huh? You, me, Petey, Big Petey, Little Petey, Reed Petey, Petey Moss. We're going to go down to 33rd and 44th Street and get some za. See, you can't, you can't say pizza. It's za, right? Does that make me a New Yorker? <laughs> well, yes, because I was one. <laughs> okay, well, let's put it this way. If here it is, I stand around with firemen all day long, I sit in a big red truck, and I slide down poles, will that make me a fireman? No. You see, there would be lots of training on how to use ladders and hoses, and I'd have to also learn how to get paid for sleeping on half my shift. <laughs> so we recognize it's not about association, but regeneration. And that brings us to our second point. It's about regeneration. It's about regeneration. Or as Gio would say from Wednesday night, transformational. The process of becoming new, that new creation, the dead man uh, going to, to sleep and the new man rising in Christ. But it takes work. And that's why Jesus says, strive to enter in, in verse 24. Now, the Greek word for strive is agonizima, which is where we get our word agonize. It's the word that's used for Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he agonized about the Father's will with such intensity that he actually sweat blood. We see this in Luke 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, although Scripture does tell us in uh, 2 Timothy 2.14 not to strive, remind of those things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words with no profit to the ruin of hearers. Now, 
notice it's not necessarily striving, but striving about words to no profit. You see, but there is one question that each and every one of us should strive to answer. Am I saved? Whether Jesus comes for us today, tomorrow, or whether we live the next 30 years, how can we know that we are going to spend eternity with our Lord? I believe in three ways. Number one, the scripture before us. 1 John 5.13 states, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. The Greek word for believe is pisteo, and it's used in reference as one who places weight like on a crutch. Pisteo doesn't mean just merely agreeing with intellectually, but to lean on or to trust in. Yet even though we believe the word of God, the fact remains that people still continue to challenge us on it. So there's a second way in which we can find assurance in our salvation. The second way, the saints around us. 1 John 3.14 states, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. You know how you know when you're born again? When you start loving Christians. The same people that you couldn't stand before you were saved. You know that you're saved when you start feeling comfortable around Christians. You start feeling comfortable in church. But if we doubt our salvation when we don't love the saints or we're as consistently as we should, there's a third way. And that is the spirit within us. Romans 8.14 states, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You see, it's the work of the Holy Spirit inside each and every one of us within our hearts so that you might know, you know that you know that you're saved. You know, Martin Luther and John Calvin called this passage the Testimonium Spiritus Internus Sanctium or the internal testimony of the Spirit. If you haven't received the witness of the Spirit in your heart, then you must wrestle, and so that you can absolutely be certain that you're truly born again, so that you can go to the Father freely and say, Abba, I come to you not because of my spirituality, but because you have cleansed me by the blood of your cross. Continuing in verse 28. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourself thrust out, they will come from the east and from the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there will be the last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. You know, when we get to heaven, I believe there's going to be a lot of surprises there. We're going to be like, you made it in? <laughs> You, you too? <laughs> but you know what? There's going to be a lot of people that look at me and think exactly the same thing. <laughs> See, success. That's what we all want to achieve. Now, I'm not talking monetary success, but heavenly riches. What are we doing to increase our success, our position eternally? 
You know, I hear so many people that are fed up with California. I get it. We've got a demoniac as a governor, some of the highest taxes in the nation, housing that is unreachable for so many. So let's say that you're going to move to, I don't know, Tennessee, free state, constitutional carry, acres of land, all green. Of course, it's green because of all the rain. But let's say you're going to go ahead and get that dream farm with all the acres and the little lammies running around. What do you need to do? There's a lot of preparation for a successful move. You need to get a good realtor. You need to sell your house. You need to find the best area to live in Tennessee. You need to find a good Bible teaching church. Find another home in Tennessee. Purchase that house. Rent a U-Haul. Pack up your house. And then find the best route across in order to get to Tennessee. Now, those are all the prerequisites for a successful move. Now, you could just jump in your car and drive to Tennessee and say, I'm here. Yeah, you'd be in Tennessee. <laughs> Congratulations, you just made it to the free state. And you see, just by naming the name of Christ as our Savior, asking for repentance of each and every one of our sins, asking him to live in our hearts and believing that he is our Savior, guess what? We get a heavenly address. And when you take your last breath here on earth, you'll take your first breath in heaven. And in essence, you'll say, I'm here. But wouldn't you rather have that mansion with all the acres and all the farm animals, those little lammies running around? Okay. I don't know if there's really going to be lambs in heaven. I think so. We know there'll be horses, right? And we can. But it requires preparation. The work for that successful move while we're still here on earth. Verse 31, on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. Did Herod really want to kill Jesus? If you remember, Herod was more curious about Jesus. When Jesus was brought to Herod during his illegal arrest and trial, Herod wanted Jesus to perform a miracle, tricks for him. Get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. This was a ruse. It was a ploy just to get Jesus to leave. Why? Because he was constantly getting under the skin of the Pharisees. Verse 32. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. Now, normally when we think of a fox, what comes to mind? We say someone is as sly as a fox, right? Yeah. But back then, a fox was just an annoyance, a vexation, a harassment. That's what he was calling Herod. Not a great ruler or somebody that he needed to fear, but just a pothole on his journey to the cross. So Jesus was on a three-day journey towards Jerusalem. And in essence, he says, I'm going to continue dealing with the devil and healing people on my way to Jerusalem. And once there, he would go ahead and put a death blow to Satan and purchase eternal healing and salvation for mankind as he hung on the cross at Calvary. Verse 33. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. I don't have to worry about Herod's threats, Jesus said. 
because I know I'll make it to Jerusalem, for that's where I must die. Verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Knowing Socrates was innocent of the charges of corrupting the youth of Athens. It is said that his executioner wept as he handed him the hemlock. However, here, the executioner doesn't weep for the condemned. The condemned weeps for the executioners. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Now, for all of those who say you can't memorize scripture... John eleven thirty five. 35, okay? <laughs> but truly, the world has never seen so much love. What a picture. Jesus cries not because Jerusalem would reject him, but because they wouldn't allow him to protect them. How about you? Have you allowed the Lord to do what he desires to do? To place his arms around you, to protect you, to comfort you? See, it's not our shortcomings. It's not our failures that causes the Lord to weep. Rather, it's our failure to allow him to love us that causes tears to flow. Jesus called Herod a fox, devious and annoyance, destructive, yet he calls himself a hen, comforting, nurturing, protective. How about you and me? Has today been a day of devouring others or has it been a day of defending others? I'm always deeply impressed with Jesus Christ because of his incredible mercy, grace, and the largeness of his heart. How I wish to be less like a fox and more like a hen. Verse 35. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's talking about his second coming. You see, you won't see me, Jesus says, until you are finally ready to acknowledge me as Lord. Folks, that is what the tribulation is all about. To bring Israel to a point that she's awakened to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. We're going to continue into chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. So first of all, whether it was a Pharisee, a tax collector, a friend, or a foe, Jesus never turns down an invitation. At this meal, he's going to speak to five different groups specifically. We're only going to get to about three of those today, and we'll finish up next week with the next two. Now, what he's going to say is brutally honest. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Proverbs 27, 6, right? Now, in verses 2 through 6, he will speak to the Pharisees about their pseudo-spirituality. In verses 7 through 11, he will talk to the guests surrounding him about their miserable manners and methodologies. In verses 12 through 14, he will correct the host who invited him concerning his wrong motives for, her, for her hospitality. And in verses 15 through 24, Jesus will reply to the man who interrupted him regarding his mistaken assumption of his destiny. And then he finishes up with verses 25 through 34, 
he will address the crowd about their need to think carefully. Now, whether it's regarding our job, whether it's regarding parenting or ministry, each and every one of us comes to a certain point where we have an opportunity to choose to do what Jesus did so naturally and so beautifully, to care more about the others doing well than about what they think about us. See, all too often I believe that we're dissuaded from speaking the truth because we want others to like us. Not in Jesus' case. Because in the chapter before us, he says things, although hard to hear, were needful not only for his listeners, but for you and me as well. Secondly, it says they watched him closely. Why? Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath before, and they wanted to see whether he was going to do it again. But what did he say in Mark 2, 27? And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not the man for Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Did Jesus care about what the Pharisees were going to think if he healed on the Sabbath? Not a plug nickel. He cared about the people. And like a hen to its chicks, he cares about you today here too. Verse 2. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. By the way, dropsy, uh, it's a disease where you keep dropping things. That's as good as it gets, folks. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, dropsy is uh, basically it's fluid. The body retains fluid. Normally, it happens in your, in your legs and your feet, and they just fill up. They fill up with all this fluid. So this man had dropsy. And Jesus answered, spoken to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. You know what that's called? Jesus punked the Pharisees. (laughs) He puts them in their place. He belittles them. He openly calls them out on their sin time and time and time again. So that now when Jesus asks a simple question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The Pharisees simply remain quiet. Jesus had already healed on the Sabbath six times times. And those are just the recorded ones that we have. Let's see what he does here. To heal or not to heal? That is the question. What do you think he's going to do? Yeah. Verse 4, and he took him and healed him and let him go. Knowing exactly what the Pharisees were thinking, Jesus is about to toss the ball back into their court silencing them in the process. Verse 5, then he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that had fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. You see, these same traditions that stated man could not heal on the Sabbath also said that if an animal had fallen into a pit on the Sabbath, it was okay to rescue him. You know, I think the same thing happens today. Legislation gets passed, and we declare that whoever removes an egg from a spotted owl's nest will be punished for the next five years in a state penitentiary. But a doctor who aborts many babies, he wants to go ahead and nobody will say a word. Or if we do speak up, then we get taken away in handcuffs by the FBI in front of our families. Like the case of Mark Houck, the founder of the Kingsmen, a pro-life Pennsylvania group who does sidewalk counseling. But when called out, the FBI, or just like our Pharisees, they couldn't answer regarding these things. Verse 7. 
So he told the parable to those who were invited. When he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give this place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever he humbles himself will be exalted. You know, I almost had an incident like this at our first, uh, my first Calvary Chapel Association meeting. There was a few people in the conference room, and I went over and I shook hands. I introduced myself, and then I asked them, I said, hey, is this seat taken? And I started to pull it out, and they go, oh, well, that's where the president of CCA normally sits. Pushed it back in. I'll walk all the way down to the end. <laughs> you see, we see here Jesus shifting his attention from the Pharisees now over to the other guests. Jesus speaks to those who were jockeying for the best spots at the table, who were more concerned about sitting in the right place than being the right person. We need to humble ourselves, folks. And that brings us to our third and our final point. Be humble. Be humble. Many celebrated a whole month of pride. In my Bible, I don't know about yours, but pride's never a good thing. But yet Jesus tells us to do exactly the opposite of the world says to do. The world says, be proud of your sexual orientation. Yet Jesus says, he that humbles himself will be exalted. Have you ever been around someone who was so full of themselves, just parading around thinking their stuff doesn't stink? Let me tell you a story about Britney Spears. So uh, there was lots of movie details that we would do on the CHP. And one of my buddies, good buddy to mine, Derek, um, his daughter loved Britney Spears. She was like 11 or 12 at the time and everything. Had the poster on, on her wall and everything. So we were doing this, uh, this shoot. And um, during one of the breaks, he walks over to her. As he's walking up, okay, she's going off. Where's my diet Pepsi? I want my diet Pepsi. I was supposed to have this 15 minutes ago. By the way, that's exactly how she sounds when she's not singing. 15 minutes ago. Where's my diet Pepsi? So he walks up and he says, excuse me, Mrs. Spears, you know, my daughter is a really big fan of yours. It would mean the world to her if she could just get an autograph from you. She looked right through him. Where's my Diet Pepsi? Now, since that event, God has allowed her to be humbled with many current events that happened in her life. And I pray that she would take those situations that would force her to come to a conclusion that Diet Pepsi is not what she needed in her life, but humility and Jesus. Amen? Amen. Verse 12. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich, rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maim, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just." 
we see Jesus shift once again, and he now addresses the host of the event. In essence, Jesus is saying, don't only invite people who can do something for you, who can pay you back, be included in their inner circle, or return your invitation. When you give a dinner, give a dinner party and invite the nobodies. Just to let you know, if you've been invited over to my house for dinner, you're a nobody. However, that's you and me, folks. We're the nobodies, the whosoevers, the anybodies. Because Jesus says in Revelations 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him, and he with me. What is it that we can do for Jesus? What benefit is it really for, him to go, for us to come and dine with him? Can we give Jesus more riches? He already owns the universe. Do, can we give him more time? He stands outside of time and space. Do we really think that the kingdom of heaven just wouldn't be complete without ourselves in it? Like we're the pièce de résistance, the crown jewel in Jesus's crown. Because we're now there with him. See, it's not what we can do for Jesus. It's what he's already done for us. The fact that he was beaten, scourged, mocked, and mutilated for us. That he carried the very instrument of his death, the cross, for over two miles outside of the city walls for us. The fact that Jesus was nailed to the cross with all of your sins and mine, nailed there with him, the perfect, sinless sacrifice for us. The fact that here it was, he was buried in a rich man's tomb, laid to rest for three days, and rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures for us. No, it's not what we can do to, for him, but again, it's what he's done for us. As we wrap up today, I want you to take time and meditate upon that. Think about what Jesus has done for you. Think if you were to go through the Bible and write down, all the good things that God has done for us. I think our hands would be a little bit sore, wouldn't they? Today, take a nice cold glass of iced tea, ice water, step outside for a bit. Take a deep breath. The, breath, the air that you're breathing, provided for you by God. Look at the trees surrounding your home. They provide shade, housing for the squirrels and birds, pine nuts for the animals, and exchange our carbon dioxide for the oxygen that we need. Again, provided for you by God. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Take that break from the busyness of the day. Let God restore your soul. And surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of our lives. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, any time that I read from Psalm 23, I am always in awe. I'm reminded on so many levels, Lord, of how you bless us and bless us abundantly. How it says you make us lie down by greener pastures. You see, because we're stubborn. We're a stiff-necked people, Lord. And as such, we can truly get caught up in the busyness of the day. 
but it says you make us lie down. Thank you, Lord, for we need that rest. Even you rested on the seventh day. So God, I pray for everybody that is here today. I pray that they would get the rest that their bodies, their minds, and spiritually that they need. I pray that you would be with us, that we would truly look around at your beautiful creation that you have blessed us with up here on the mountains. And we'd see your beauty and you in it all. I pray that you would be with us this day. Lord, we're not worthy. Each and every one of us is a sinner. For your word says, for we all fall short of the glory of, your, of you, Lord. And as such, Lord, forgive us our sins. Remind us that it is Jesus in the center of our hearts that blesses us and only because of him that we are saved. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.